Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. This is our um, last class for, uh, uh, and we're finishing the book of Genesis, which is really nice timing. Perfect. Um, and um, um, then we won't have class for two weeks. And then in January, and I'll mention this again at the end, we have a special guest teacher for the first three weeks of January, Rabbi Leila Galberner, who is, was a classmate of mine and rabbinical school and someone I admire and love. And she's written a book uh, about the results of her, oh, Rabbi Ellen showing it. It's called, hold on. Listening to the Heart of Genesis, A Contemplative Path. Um, what, um, what Layla's been doing is uh, developing an approach to Torah study based on a contemplative, uh, uh, taking just phrases and short passages and reflecting and meditating on them and it should be really cool. So we'll be resuming, but I won't be teaching those three weeks. Rabbi Layla will be teaching those three weeks in January. I really encourage you to attend. Uh, it'll be a nice change uh, to get another teacher's um, take on things. And that's really nice. Jonathan, what's the first date? Um, January. Hold on, I'm just gonna check. The 6th, the 13th, and the 20th. Right, the 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 thirteenth and the twentieth, the first three um, Thursdays of January. <sighs> um, and uh, good. Okay, so let's say a blessing for studying Torah. Baruch Atadunai Elohinu Melech Haolam. Asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok v'divrei Torah. Amen. I want to take the um, the longer view, since we're finishing the book today. We alluded to it last week, I believe. Of this part is called Vayechi. It's um which means, and he lived, it starts, and Jacob or Israel lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. And then uh, it, it recounts Jacob's lengthy deathbed scene and then his burial and then Joseph's deathbed scene. And the uh, book of Genesis ends. Um, it's really a, there's a real ending there. And of course, the next sequel, the next Exodus, book number two will say, and a new king arose who did not know Joseph. And we're on to the next drama, right? The next profound story. Uh, but there's a real ending here. And as I mentioned last week, I believe, um, the, the more I sit with it, the more I am um, uh, persuaded 
that there is a, um, a theme and a narrative arc to Genesis. And that theme is the question of the first brother, Cain, who kills Abel, who says, am I my brother's keeper? And it seems very clear in a book that is all about siblings. The book is all about siblings. One generation after another, um, um, Isaac and Ishmael, and then Jacob and Esau, and then Joseph and his brothers, um, not to mention, and we should mention Rachel and Leah, who get their own chapter of rivalry in the um, story. Uh, siblings addressing the question, am I my brother's keeper? And uh, I don't know if you were here uh, many months ago when Peter Pitsley presented um, on a Shabbat for us via Zoom, his approach called bibliodrama. Peter Pitsley lives in our area. I'm gonna mention him again because his book, Our Father's Wells, A Personal Encounter with the Myths of Genesis. I really like this book a lot. And I turn to it every now and then. Um, he sees he sees the book not only as a story about siblings asking the question, but specifically about men, patriarchy, men figuring out um, what brotherhood is. Is it possible? I think there's a lot to it uh, that he focuses on men. I also think that it's not too much of a stretch for anyone who's had a sister <laughs> to know that there are other related dynamics that last a lifetime. Um, and uh, the question has to be asked, are we our brother's keeper? Are we our sister's keeper? When Joseph successfully answers that question at the end of Genesis, the, the children of Israel are ready to become a nation at that point. And the drama moves from family to nationhood in, in, in the next book. So what I wanna do, oh, I also wanted to mention that this is week is my father's yard site, David Kligler, blessed memory. And so it's customary to um, dedicate some teaching in his memory. And I, I'm gonna do that today. Um, so what I wanna do with you is share uh, the last, the very last piece of Genesis. And then I wanna share with you a lengthy midrash that uh, Peter Pitsley wrote in the voice of Jacob that I find very moving. And I welcome as always your comments and questions at any time. I'm gonna share the screen. Where, where was I? Here it is. Wait, I'm not gonna donate today. Gotta get, I gotta fix that so I get more window. There we go. 
And let me put this down here. Okay. Naomi says, that's so interesting. Carolyn Mace talks about the chakras and how the first one, the root chakra is about survival and being in the family. And the second one about joining the community and surrendering to the tribe. Wow, yes, exactly. It, it moves from being familial to tribal. And the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 children of Israel, each represent then, move from representing an individual to representing a tribe, precisely. That's so interesting, Naomi. And um, in that regard, they also, we move from siblings of sibling rivalry to a twelveness, which is like a zodiac, a fullness, a, a, a different dynamic of um, completeness and of system. So yes, thank you. So, um, after burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong that we did him? So, even though Joseph made it clear that he, would, he wasn't going to get revenge on him, the brothers are still carrying this around and have been figuring that Joseph was perhaps just being nice to them until dad died. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before his death, your father left this instruction. This, is this would appear to be fabricated. So shall you say to Joseph, forgive, I urge you, the offense and guilt of your brothers who treated you so harshly. Therefore, please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph was in tears as they spoke to him. His brothers went to him themselves and flung themselves before him and said, we are prepared to be your slaves. But Joseph said to them, have no fear. Am I a substitute for God? Besides, although you intended me harm, God intended it for good. So as to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. And so fear not, I will sustain you and your children. And thus he reassured them speaking kindly to them. That's their, that's the last, uh, that's that conversation. And here's the end. So Joseph and his father's household remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph lived to see the children of the third generation of Ephraim. The children of Machir, son of Menasheh, were likewise born upon Joseph's knees, his great-grandchildren. At length, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. God will surely take notice of you and bring you up from this land to the land that he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
And so Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, when God has taken notice of you, carry you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in the coffin in Egypt. The end. It's a cool ending. Um, Joseph transforms the brotherly conflict. And um, it's a, I don't know, it's just a beautiful ending to the whole saga. Uh, even though around the corner is more hardship. Uh, here's a moment. Uh, when and, and Joseph's transformation into understanding that the purpose of his life was to care for his brothers and his family is his purpose. And it's his purpose because God, this mysterious force that has sent him on this roller coaster of a life, seems to intend that to be so. Um, and that is the that that and so he answers the question that lingers over the whole book. Um, so what I want to read to you is uh, um, Peter Pitzley's midrash about Joseph's deathbed experience. I and I typed it out for you, Sylvia. Your sentence got cut off. The Parsha says, says Barbara, that Joseph was embalmed. I don't know if that's the same as modern embalming, but when did embalming become forbidden in Jewish law? Ah, uh, now this is a great question, which I won't linger on long right now. Remember, just as you say, Judaism has been around a long time, Barbara, and uh, many things that the framers of rabbinic Judaism claim go back to the origins of time we can locate in history. So um, uh, in, uh, the, for the, the Joseph is clearly following the customs of Egypt because it says Jacob was embalmed also before they brought him up to the land. So um, embalming, um, um, so the, the idea is that the, the prohibition against embalming comes some long time later after the biblical characters. Uh, the same can be said about keeping kosher, about, oh, we can go on and on and on. The, so these are later practices that um, we see were not practiced necessarily in the time of the Bible. Sylvia says, as the first psychotherapist, Rabbi Sachs calls Joseph the first psychotherapist. CBT and positive psychology, as well as Viktor Frankl's work. That's right. You know, I've been reading a lot of op-ed pieces that are citing Viktor Frankl, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, because we are in such a catastrophic looking time uh, that uh, we look to Viktor Frankl, who survived the camps by 
identifying the character, personality characteristics, not just personality, but spiritual orientation of survive of what how you could survive that and still thrive. And it has to do with assigning me greater meaning and purpose to your existence uh, uh, that can include and incorporate your suffering and, and also the cruelty that's imposed upon you. And that's, that is what Joseph succeeded in doing. So I wanna read um, uh, Peter Pitsley's Midrash and I typed it out for you because I know sometimes it's easier to hear things when you can also see the text. So let me share it on the screen and I'm gonna read it to you because I found it so beautiful uh, and moving along the, precisely the lines of what we're saying right now. Okay. Can you see it everybody? It's over here? I'll read it to you. Once upon a time, I'm gonna make it a little bigger. Once upon a time, I was sent by my father to look for my brothers. I set out, though my heart was full of misgivings. I knew they hated me. I had no idea how much. My father had said they were in Shechem. I went. When I came to the pastures there, I found no sign of my brothers. For a moment, I felt relief thinking I could return to my father and tell him I could not find them. But I knew he would be displeased with me. Then I saw, and the italics mean it's a quote from the Torah. Then I saw a man standing in the field. He saw me and approached. What are you looking for? He asked. Though I am not sure how he knew I was looking for anything or anyone. I am looking for my brothers, I told him. And before I could describe them, he said, they have gone to Dotan. He pointed the way. I thanked him and left him standing alone in the field. It took me three days to reach Dotan. But on the morning of the third day, lifting up my eyes, I saw my brothers in the distance and, well, you know the rest. But what you do not know is how often I thought of this man in the field. In the pit, listening to my brother's slaver over me like wolves, I thought of the man in the field and I cursed the meeting. By that small coincidence, I was about to be killed. Yet when I went to the house of Potiphar and was given such a place of trust and eminence, I thought of that man in the field. Had it not been for the coincidence of meeting him, I would still be following sheep on the hills of Canaan. Later still, when Potiphar's wife accused me, when I was thrown into another pit and saw the years of my manhood wasted in confinement, I thought ruefully of the man in the field. Yet he seemed to me now a kind of presence perhaps because I thought of him so often. There was a 
mystery and warmth in my memory of him enough so that I did not freeze into despair. At times, I thought I could hear his voice, but he only seemed to ask the same question. What are you looking for? In prison, a, few, a thousand answers came. Then I was released and I flew to power. Seated at the right hand of Pharaoh, I had occasion often to be asked how one so young and foreign born had come to enjoy such privilege. At such times, I thought to speak of my coincidental meeting with the man in the field, but I never did. Who would understand? Also, it seemed he had not finished with me, for still his question would come to me at the oddest moments. What are you looking for? And though it seemed I had everything a man could possibly want, in fact, there was still an emptiness, a deep sense of incompletion, and I didn't know how to answer him. Then my brothers came. Yes, I put them through an ordeal. I had my own hatred, my own rage at their betrayal, and I could see no possibility of reconciliation. My most urgent thought was how to wrest Benjamin from their grasp before they did to him what they had done to me. Yet I looked at them with such a longing in my heart and I wept alone in longing. I thought then of the man in the field and I knew then that what I had said to him so long ago was true. I was looking for my brothers. Through the intervening years, though blocked from me by my pain and fear, I was still looking for them. And now that they were here, I felt unsure about how to meet them and how to disclose myself to them. I don't need to belabor this. That man in the field, who was he? I never knew, of course, but in time, I came to see him as a sort of angel. As the time comes for me to die and my brothers gather round me, I can still read in their faces the old traces of fear. It seems to me now that there is another brother who stands among them, silent, watching. It is, I see, the man in the field. He has come to take my hand and lead me into the dream, more deeply into its luminous wilderness. Is he death? I do not know, but he brings me to the edge of the farthest field. And beyond that edge, I know I will meet the dreamer. My heart leaps in a sudden ecstasy and suddenly I seem to be running with him across that same wide field in which he first met me. Except the ground is dissolving into light. We fly. Under us, the landscape dissolves into gold, spirals of gold whirling back into an infinite distance. I am going home. Tell my story. Someone must tell the children there is a dream, a dreamer, 
and that this whole tangled web of living is shot through with light. Someone must tell the children to look for the man in the field, even if you will only credit him in retrospect. Remind the brothers and the sisters that they must have an idea of a power beyond the personal in order to be released from the arid prison of personality. Tell them that power rightly understood is not self-created. Power comes to us, power comes through us. We can neither own it nor conserve it. Our powers are renewed constantly from a source. Like water in a well, we find it, we tap it, we use it, but the water, the living water, that we did not create. I am the end of patriarchy, its flower and fruit. In me are integrated loveliness and strength, act and word. I am son and brother, husband and father, a man of the world and a man of dreams. I entered my dreams, but they were not just my dreams, they were given to me. In the season of his final blessings, my father, my father said of me that I was the fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. I have known the sweet waters of my father's well. I am part of that sweetness forever. Yes, Peter Pitsley takes one sentence from the Torah, what are you looking for? And has woven an entire midrash, says David Cape. And what makes it a good midrash is that he's not taking it out of context. He's contextualizing it. A good midrash makes the story stronger, doesn't take us on a flight of fancy somewhere else, but gets us deeper, opens up layers underneath the surface narrative. And I feel that's what he did there. What are you looking for? And remember, Joseph is the dreamer. Joseph is the dreamer. So following my, uh, uh, Abigail, you raised your hand, please. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> it works today. Um, this was very moving, and I really got the resonance of this man with the burning bush incident for Moses. Because Ish is Ash with a Yud, which is divinity. Okay, Ish means, everybody, Ish means person or man. And Aish means fire. And the Yud, the only difference is the addition of the Yud. So if you take fire and you insert God within it, you have Ish. Beautiful. And, and that's the burning desire for life. And then it also reminded me of um, Elul. And during the month of Elul, God is waiting for us in the field. Good. God is in the field waiting for us to, and God is saying, so wh where are you going? Where are you going? And 
it's the trajectory of everyone's life and we're all looking for a family and many of us have a certain emptiness for finding our family whether we have one or, or not some people are only children and they wish they had a family other people have too many siblings <laughs> and don't have a connection so uh, this was deeply resonant and thank you for sharing it and you raised thank you Abigail and you raised two of the resonances that I heard one Everyone should know that in Jewish mystical and spiritual thought, the field is the place where we meet God. Not necessarily directly related to this story of the man in the field, but it's this sense of open expanse. And um, uh, there's that Rumi poem that Blaze has on, the, um, on her signature for emails out beyond ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there, right? Beyond our, our deciding about what's acceptable and not acceptable, what should happen, what isn't, what beyond, if we can get beyond that, out beyond our ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. That's where the mystery dwells. That's where miracles happen. That's where the unknown. Leah, are you raising your hand? Yeah, I am. Please, love to hear from you. Two things come to my mind. No mention is made of Dina at all. And the second thing is, um, how come Joseph, the next to the youngest, and by the way, I mean, we're, we don't even think that Benjamin's already 35 years old and has is married and has children of his own. That, we think of Benjamin as a young child, but that's because they want us to think of Benjamin as a young child. But how come James, the next, I mean, Joseph, the next, the youngest, dies with all his brothers still living? And that. Mm -hmm. Leah, Leah, you're being too literal again. I am. Yeah. yeah. This, this is a myth. A myth is not worried about who's older and who's younger about whether, how could they still be alive? It's like a fairy tale and it has a message. And so um, if you try to parse it for it, logical things like that, you'll miss the forest for the trees. Um, and so Dina is not there because Dina is, serves a different purpose in a different story, right? Dina serves a purpose in the story that she's in. The 12 brothers as a mythical unit, a 12-some, serve a purpose in this, in this story. Um, and so, I mean, they have to even stay 12, Leah. That's why Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, get a double share, so that they'll still be 12. So it's, it's, it's for the purpose of the story, not for the purpose of logical consistency, I'm afraid. You'll never find satisfaction taking that route in trying to understand the Torah, in my opinion. Thank you. You'll, just find you'll just find confusion and you have to read it as a tale rather than as a, uh, some kind of historical fiction. And that also confuses me while we read it as a tale and yet we, we put so much truth in it. Ah, which kind of truth? The truth of the historical <laughs> truth or inner truth? Inner, uh, 
inner, it's, I guess it's the inner truth. I mean, that's the only way I can study Torah. Otherwise, it becomes a faulty history book and one that loses my interest after a while. Yeah, well, that's why I enjoy your classes. Yes. So I'm just reminding you of that again, because I certainly know I have that part of my brain also. What do you mean his brothers are still alive? He's the youngest. It's like, eh, doesn't matter. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, Deborah said, I am thinking of the Wizard of Oz. Joseph's journey led him to connect to a power that was within him, as well as beyond what is personal. Yes, the Wizard of Oz. Le Leah, we never expect the Wizard of Oz to be a logical story, right? And yet we love it. Why? Because there's no place like home. I'm clicking my heels together, by the way. Um, and um, I did it as a reflex. It's like, I'm telling you that I'm clicking my heels together. <laughs> so that's a great example. Why do we love the Wizard of Oz? Cause it represents courage and intellect and a heart and you know a tin man what's a tin man like and we never would ask that question about the wizard of us so that's why i think we've i think human beings have really done disservice to the torah by trying to make it into a true story um it doesn't serve doesn't serve us so abigail your grandfather's sibs died from a youngest to oldest um Okay, so it can happen. Uh, all right. Um, so what I wanted to say about Abigail's comment was first I was talking about the field. During the, um, in, um, in the month of Elul, we quote the Song of Songs. Lecha dodi hasade. Come, my beloved, let's go out to the field where we can meet the one who made us, right? So rather than the image, so there's two, there's, there's, there are many different images of what it means to meet God, to encounter God. One image is to go into the heavenly palace and cower, speaking of the Wizard of Oz, go into the heavenly palace and cower before the, uh, in awe and terror before the judgment seat. It's like, that is one experience of encountering the infinite majesty of creation and our smallness. But there's another metaphor that also lives throughout Judaism, which isn't founded on reverence and um, uh, terror and awe, but on love. And that's this image of the field, the big open field beyond ideas of right and wrong, where we can go out and meet the, man, the mysterious man, the, the, the mystery and encounter it and not understand it, but still be present to it and respond to it. Yes, as Ellen said, the king is in the field is the month of Elul, that when we're getting ready for Rosh Hashanah, um, it's this beautiful counterpoint in Jewish tradition to the, uh, the awe of the high holidays is this whole month of kind of being out in the field. The other thing, the burning bush that Abigail mentioned, um, in Peter Pitzley's uh, Midrash, he says towards the end, um, 
that when he meets the man in the field at his deathbed, it says, he brings me to the edge of the farthest field. And again, I don't know if Peter was thinking of this, but when Moses encounters the burning bush, it says he went beyond the edge of the wilderness. So what is that myth-wise? It's like not only going through the wilderness, but beyond to the to what what is this beyond that he's traveling to it reminds me of that expansive field where the horizon's over there and you just walk over it and what do you encounter there and you bring your questions what are you looking for what are you looking for dorothy what are you looking for oh i guess it was always inside me right and I never thought, you know, it's, it's another story of questing because when Moses encounters the burning bush, and I want to restate that beautiful thing Abigail said that the word ish, meaning man, has, um, and the word ish, which means fire, the difference is the little letter yud, which is the presence of God. The word isha, which means woman, and the word ish, which means fire, the only difference is the hay. So when you put ish or isha together, you get yud, hay, animating the fire, right? The chaos. So it's just a beautiful wordplay in Hebrew. And um, Moses encounters on the beyond the edge of the field of the wilderness, he encounters the burning bush. A Place Beyond Language, says Gail. Peter Pitsley's book is called Our Father's Wells. A Personal Encounter with the Myths of Genesis. Peter Pitsley. Maybe, uh, Rabbi Ellen, you'd be so kind as to type that into the chat for people. Um, I'm going to remember where I wanted to go with this. Um, ah, yes. So Joseph is the dreamer. But here's what came to my mind. This idea, what, have that question hanging over our, sort of hovering over our lives. What are you looking for? And if we don't, if we ignore that existential question, who's asking? Even that is worth contemplating. Who's calling? If we ignore that question hovering over our lives, we come up with the answer of Cain, fratricide, right? Um, uh, I think I'll read a little more uh, of what Peter says after his midrash. I think it's quite beautiful. Um, let's see. 
Oh, no, I think it was right before it. Excuse me. Genesis recognizes brotherhood as the evolutionary edge of manhood, and so it has always been. And he's speaking to men specifically because that was his orientation, but I'll, so I'll read his language. Where men have failed to push to this edge, cultures and civilizations have been destroyed and lost forever. Men slaughter their brothers unless they are held by a higher purpose. No Joseph, that is, no vital cultural ideal like him, no survival. I'll read that again. No Joseph, that is, no vital cultural ideal like him, no survival. Simple as that. Unless we achieve brotherhood, we will in the end destroy ourselves and all human life. This is the terrible forecast of the myth of the murdered, the myth of the murdered brother. It is the option of Cain. The final project of Genesis is to construct and ennoble the idea of brotherhood so that men can imagine and then choose a life in peace with one another. I think he articulates, he unearths in so clear language, what I would say could, is, is the message of the book of Genesis in the stories that it tells. And I wanna read you something that came to my mind as soon as I read that. And by the way, Rich said, some of this imagery is reminiscent of Larry Kushner's River of Light. Oh, absolutely. It's all coming out of the stream of Jewish Jewish spiritual and mystical thought. Let me share my screen with you again. This is what came to my mind. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, something we're hearing for the first time in many years again today. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls 
as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, quoting the book of Isaiah, every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope and this is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. I heard all of it. I'm gonna read Rob and Deborah's comment. Rob says, I wonder if this is a cautionary tale about climate, pandemics, etc. If only consider ourselves and do not take care of others, we may perish. Correct, Rob. In some, what isn't safe until all are safe. Deborah says, how disengaged from connection does a person have to be in order to not realize that in killings one brother, one destroys oneself, and yet here we are. Thank you, Deborah. Gail, do you wanna add anything? I'd love if you'd like to say something. Cause Gail wrote a um, book, uh, her book of Torah uh, interpretation really deals with this. Um, yeah, I think also that Genesis takes us to the place. Definitely, it's about that opening line is, you know, I'm my brother's keeper. And of course, brother in Hebrew is also kin. So by the end of Genesis, it's extended to everyone who's part of those 12 tribes, right? But there's also, I think, a foreshadowing because, and we're much more aware of it as modern readers, I think. And you just went there with the quote you just read from Reverend King, which is that Joseph, in his saving of everybody, also enslaves the Egyptian people who have to give up their land, their ownership of their farms and become slaves of Pharaoh. It's the only way they get the food. So it's the foreshadowing. And then we become, as soon as Shemot opens, we all become enslaved ourselves. And the rest of the book has as much love your neighbor as yourself as it has love the stranger as yourself. So there's the, it's foreshadowing. It's, it's like a novel writing, you know? There's going to be something more here about this enslavement because it's We're not, not enough yet. to love, love your kin. That's that, yeah, we need to, but it's not just those we recognize as like ourselves. It's those we don't feel are like ourselves that we have to love or at least treat justly, okay, and equitably. So it's a setup for, for Exodus. Right. So here's the end of volume one with this beautiful, expansive, um sort of conclusion but it's not it's good we're going to have to expand more and we're going to have to expand more and more and more that's right that's right thank you gail and, and obviously that's what rob was talking about and everyone and deborah i mean yeah right right 
And maybe and eventually even, even to the animals and the plants and the whole, you know, the whole planet, as David Seidenberg is talking about. Love it all, because it's all God's. Love it all. And uh, at the same time, the biggest challenge, yes, and expand beyond humanity. And yet the biggest challenge is to do it with the people that our lives are most intertwined with. So we can't skip over that, right? Genesis doesn't skip over that, right? You can't get to the next level if you're pretend, if you're carrying all of that, everything those brothers are still carrying at the end of the book, they're never gonna make it, not as a family. There's gonna have to be, uh, that, that you have to deal with the ones you're closest to as well. Do you wanna add more, Gail? No, just that Torah has us continuing to struggle. That's a big chunk yeah. of what goes on. It isn't that it ends, yeah. we just, we keep, we've expanded the range and we keep struggling with the beginnings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now keep thinking of yourself. Oh, one more thing about Joseph that I found fascinating that um, uh, Peter Pitsley alludes to and got me thinking is that Abram becomes Abraham, gets a new name. Jacob becomes Israel, even though there's still Jacob. He's still Jacob, he becomes Israel. Joseph, when he ascends to the, the vizier position next to Pharaoh's throne, gets a new name in Parshat Mikay. It's called Safnat Paneach. It's an Egyptian word that, um, uh, the, common, the, the scholarly commentary explains, let me just see that again. Um, Egyptian for creator of life, or perhaps God lives, or God speaks and lives. Anyway, but in the Midrash, Safnat, remember from the Passover Seder, the word Safun, that's when you hide the Afikoan, Komen? Safnat means, can mean in a Midrashic interpretation, hiddenness. So Joseph's identity goes into hiding as Joseph. He's no longer Joseph. He's Safnat Kanea. For the next, he marries Osnat, which is an Egyptian name. Osnat is the daughter of Potiphar House. Anyway, and they have a child, Menashe. And it says, and Joseph named his child Menashe because it means Nasheni, you have made me forget my home and my suffering. So Joseph goes into deep um, uh, denial. Where is he going as he constructs this new identity, new family, names his kid, thanks for helping me forget my family. And then his family shows up at his feet and I'm Joseph. It's such an extraordinary arc also in the story. There's so many layers like this. I wanted to mention that to you. So Joseph's arc is to become Joseph again. And in so doing, he becomes whole. It's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. And he doesn't try to supplant his brother the way Jacob did. And he doesn't mock his brother the way Ishmael mocks Isaac. 
And he certainly doesn't kill his brother the way Cain does Abel. Instead, Joseph remembers the man in the field, remembers the question, oh, right, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. And it all comes rushing up. It's such beautiful storytelling. One other quote of my favorite quotes popped into my head as I was reading this in terms of how we, how we sense that man in the field and the question, what are you looking for, lingering in our lives, our whole lives? Maybe God willing at the end, taking us into a larger answer, showing us the pattern of the tapestry that we can't really discern in our lifetime. Making this statement of intuition and faith that it, we're not an accident, but that our question is the right question, that we need to be looking for something. That is what we're here for. What are we looking for? So beautiful, so beautiful. That's what makes us human, is holding that question. I'm very, I'm very touched by that. Here's the quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel that popped in my head. You've heard me read it before. It's a very meaningful passage to me. Um, it's called Expectations. Over and above personal problems, there is an objective challenge to overcome inequity, injustice, helplessness, suffering, carelessness, oppression. Over and above, and this phrase I love, the din of desires. Pretty busy down here. Over and above the din of desires, there is a calling a demanding, a waiting, an expectation. There is a question that follows me wherever I turn. What is expected of me? What is demanded of me? What we encounter is not only flowers and stars, mountains and walls, over and above all things is a sublime expectation, a waiting for, a man in the field, saying, what are you looking for? With every child born, a new expectation enters the world. This is the most important experience in the life of every human being. Something is asked of me. Every human being is at a moment in which he sensed a mysterious waiting for him. Meaning is found in responding to the demand. Meaning is found in sensing the demand. What are you looking for? And then Joseph, who hasn't used his name in 20 years, his brothers appear and the question comes back and his response, I'm looking for my brother.
bless us all with sensing the big questions and ennobling us, giving us again an intimation of the larger purpose of this infinite tapestry of life that we're woven into. Ruth said, what can I do? Answer, become what you always have been. That is the spiritual understanding of that, that this potentiality is waiting within us all the time. <sighs> well, thank you for letting me share that. It seemed like a wonderful way to give up closure to this beautiful book of Genesis, astounding astounding book of Genesis.